Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here as always with John Mitchell. We've got some great things to talk about today, starting with Mel Tucker's move to Michigan State, what it means for Colorado, what it means for the Spartans, what it means for the Power Five conferences in general. In our second segment, we're going to be looking at early national championship odds, some good values, some overreaches by the odds makers, looking at it a couple of different ways. And then in our final segment, we're going to take a quick look at some Great coverage that's been on Saturday Blitz lately here. Uh, just to remind you that even in the off season, we're always here talking college football. Before we dive in, though, John, how are things going for you this week? It's going really well. You know, trying to tread the water of the long off season, but getting getting with you every month or every week, I should say, and discussing college football kind of makes it feel like you know there's still something there at least. Definitely. When that's the thing I, you know, starting with the Mel Tucker situation, I I think that's a great place to go, you know. Um, Good reminder for everybody, we record this on Monday or Tuesday evenings and, uh, you know, to give time to edit before we release on Wednesday mornings. And when we talked about Mark D'Antonio and the Michigan State job last week, We didn't really talk about Mel Tucker, and uh, as John mentioned to me before we started up with our chat today, you know, in our defense, Tucker had already turned down the job, said he was, you know, not going to be taking it. But ultimately, money talks, John. What really stuck out to you from, from this move by Tucker between Power 5 schools? You know... I thought it was interesting that the the main takeaway from for like everyone for every like national writer that I saw that was talking about Michigan State hiring Mel Tucker the big takeaway was that it was kind of a punch to the gut for the Pac-12 right that another Power Five conference for the second time this off season a Power Five conference had come in and poached a coach from the Pac-12 and not even like you know a really big job like. We talked about last week, Michigan State's got, you know, some name brand recognition, but it's also probably the fourth best job in the Big Ten West, or Big Ten East, excuse me, Yeah, Big Ten East. Um, And then, you know, Mississippi State coming and pulling Mike Leach from Pullman to Starkville when, you know, it's such an uphill battle in the SEC West every year for Mississippi State to be competitive. But, you know, I didn't really take it that way, Zach. Like, that wasn't my first thought. My first thought was wow, did Michigan State really pay $5 million for a coach that went 5-7 and seven his first year as a head coach? Like what? Why would Colorado even think about matching that? I think, the no offense to Mel Tucker, he might turn out to be a really good coach, but he's still very unproven. Uh, you know, he had some success as the defensive coordinator at Georgia, obviously, but he also coached under a defensive guru himself and Kirby Smart, so it's fair to question you know, was Mel Tucker's defense there uh, more a product of Smart and Nick Saban's system, or was it him kind of coaching them up? They've been certainly fine since he left on that side of the ball. 
Um, so I thought it was interesting that the big takeaway was a slap in the face of the, of the Pac-12 when, to me, it was it was Michigan State kind of swinging for the fences and mostly striking out and finally, you know, taking a big swing and maybe hitting an infield single to third base is what it kind of felt like to me. I think it's a, a massive overpay in my mind for a coach that, you know, obviously he has ties to the Midwest. He's coached at Michigan State before. But, I mean, they practically doubled his salary, and I don't take that as any kind of, you know, highbrow talk of the Pac-12 being a lesser conference. Yes, the Pac-12 has its problems, obviously, um, and seeing two coaches leave for other jobs that, you know, can only be considered really lateral moves at best, in my opinion. I still think, obviously, money talks, like we, we had mentioned, but to me it just felt like Michigan State really gambling with a lot of money that, you know, maybe they really shouldn't have. And I think Colorado was perfectly smart to, you know, let him leave at that point, not try to come back and match that salary because it's a ridiculous amount of money for a coach that has one year of head coaching experience, in my opinion. I completely agree here that this was an overreach by Michigan State, you know. As you said, he's making five and a half million on average over the course of this six-year contract. He was under a five-year, fourteen point seven five million dollar contract at Colorado. They were slated to pay about two point seven this year, I think, and he'll be making five five and a half million this year. So yeah, I mean, they effectively doubled his salary, which. You know, for a guy who said that there's no transfer portal in real life, uh, obviously when it comes down to, you know, employment opportunities in real life, there sure as hell is a transfer portal. And it is instantaneous and does not require sitting out a year or anything of that nature. We harp on that a lot, everybody. I just have to throw that out there. But what I really want to touch on is what you mentioned about the Pac-12. And I think a big reason that this narrative comes out here is it, you know, Colorado was probably smart not to consider doubling a guy's salary, any guy's salary, especially one with a single year of head coaching experience who it hasn't tasted 500 football yet. I'm with you there. At the same time, you know, it speaks to disparities in that TV revenue. The fact that the Big Ten basically brings in twice as much money so they can pay a guy twice as much and take that swing, you know. At the same time, of the 16 coaches who in 2019 made $5 million or more in base salary... Uh, five were from the SEC, five were from the Big Ten, three of them were from the Big 12, two were from the ACC, one was from the American Athletic Conference, Charlie Strong was actually pulling down $5 million at South Florida, and none from the Pac-12. And, you know, they're in that same league as the Mountain West, the MAC, Conference USA, the Sun Belt, basically everybody in the group of five except South Florida, who, you know, that's their own story to talk about, but I'm not really going to go there. The thing is, is the Pac-12 is spending like a group of five league, and 
part of that is because they're the conference that basically lost in their gamble to create their own network. You know, the Big Ten Network's been doing all right. We hear about the ACC Network. Um, the SEC Network's obviously doing okay. But the Pac-12 is is hemorrhaging. And, you know, we can talk about the amount of money they spent on Pac-12 headquarters to be broadcast out of. We can talk about, you know, any number of factors. But the thing is, is the big... The Big Ten is distributing more than $50 million a year to their schools. I think it was $54 million last year, or two years ago, it was something like $56 million this most recent season. And that has a compounding effect when it happens year after year after year. The fact is, you know... Alabama's recruiting budget is higher than Mel Tucker's head coach salary was at Colorado. A school, you know, some of these schools can just spin, outspend the Pac-12 in every regard. And so for these coaches, it's not just, you know, I can get twice as much money, but it's also, I can get twice the recruiting budget, I can get, you know, three times as much for my assistant salaries, I can just get a wide range of, you know, different support that you just can't get at a Pac-12 school these days. And so, you know, I, you know, Mike Leach leaves, that's, you know, a lateral move, as you said, moving from Pullman to Starkville, probably, in terms of competitive balance in their respective divisions, you know, you've got to figure you've got as good a chance of winning the Pac-12 North at Washington State as you do winning the SEC West at Mississippi State. You've got a much better chance in Pullman of making noise in any given year. But money talks. And, you know, Mike Leach is going to be one of seven coaches in, in the SEC in 2020 who's probably pulling down more than $5 million a year. You know, we won't know for certain until we get those statistics out. Um, but both he and Ed Orgeron are slated to join the five coaches that were in the SEC and made $5 million last year. Now you have Mel Tucker joining Harbaugh, Jeff Brom. Uh, James Franklin, Pat Fitzgerald, and Scott Frost. You know, you probably got Ryan Day coming close there soon as well if it doesn't happen next year. So you've got, you know, half of the coaches in these leagues are making more than the top guy in the Pac-12 who's currently David Shaw at Stanford now that Chris Peterson is retired. Right. Yeah, I, you know... It's definitely time for some kind of reassessment, I think, out West. I think part of the issue, too, Zach, is I think the Pac-12 really needs USC. I think the Pac-12 really needs USC to be USC again. I think the fact that the Trojans have been, you know, teetering between mediocrity for in recent seasons has been difficult. But even their ability to attract a big-name coach in recent years has been difficult. You know, they pulled... Steve Sarkisian a few cycles ago from Washington, a former offensive coordinator at USC. That wasn't a massive splash hire. 
Um, and then, you know, Clay Helton as the interim head coach who got the title and they've stuck with him in consecutive off seasons that pretty much every fan of the Trojans in LA was screaming for them to get rid of Clay Helton and they decided to stick it out. So I wonder if part of that is their, you know, inability to attract the big name that other schools have been able to attract. But I think USC struggles have been difficult for the Pac-12 as a whole. But I also, like I said, I don't want to get too, you know, negative about the Pac-12's ability to hang on to coaches because I think both situations were, you know, made sense other than just it being an issue for the conference as a whole because Mike Leach, I think, had reached the point that he really had nowhere else to go at Washington State. I think he had reached the pinnacle of what he was going to be able to do for the Cougars. I don't think he was going to be able to win any more than he had. He could not get over the Washington hurdle. He was, what, 0-5, 0-6 against the Huskies, whatever it was. Never won an Apple Cup. Had, you know, numerous opportunities. Had a chance to win the um, Pac-12 North last year in the Apple Cup and came up short um, with potentially the best quarterback that's come through there in a long time in Gardner Minshew. Uh, So I I think it was time for him to get a a new challenge, a new start somewhere else. So I think that makes sense. And then, you know, I think Colorado potentially even was a little worried about matching or coming anywhere close to matching a salary with what we saw last year with Purdue – forking over all that money to hang on to Jeff Brom just for the Boilermakers. And obviously there's some extenuating circumstances with injuries, but just for the Boilermakers to not make the progress that many people thought they were going to make in West Lafayette in 2020, despite the fact that Jeff Brom, another coach that doesn't have a winning record on his resume as a head coach yet is now making over $5 million. So it's interesting that there's been a lot of what feels like overpays to either hang on to your guy or to nab a guy. And I don't know. I don't I don't have a I guess my finger on the pulse of the fans in East Lansing at the moment, but I can't imagine Mel Tucker felt like a home run hire. No, you know, I we definitely mentioned some of the names that were buzzing and I I that would, certainly wasn't one that stuck out to me. So I'd love to hear from somebody like Connor, our site editor here at Saturday Blitz, who is closer to the ground there, and it'd be interesting maybe to definitely check out some of the stuff he's written about this. Because honestly, you know, given the way things went down in the hiring process, I think fans are, are more irrationally excited about it there in Spartans country than they might necessarily want to be. So I, you know, I, I really don't know where it goes from there. It really, it comes down to what happens in 2020 and beyond. Is this actually an investment that pays off for Michigan state? And was that first season at Colorado, just a blip that was kind of almost inevitable given, you know, the, the state of the program as Tucker came in it could very well play out to pass like that. But at the same time, Spartans fans better be ready because it's probably not going to be a comfortable first couple of seasons there in East Lansing either. No, and I mean, you think about it too from Colorado. They went 5-7 and seven last year, despite the fact that they had decent bit of talent on that roster, it felt like, with 
LaVisca Chenault at wide receiver, who's one of the most dynamic playmakers in the country, and Steven Montez at quarterback. You know, there's some talent on that roster that has to be replaced this year. So, you know, you don't know if it was Tucker's ability to coach or what. It's hard to judge a coach after one year. I know fans want to jump and judge a coach during their first year as much as possible because, you know, as fans, we behave irrationally quite a bit when it comes to these sorts of things. But, you know, it's amazing to me that they paid. I was shocked, honestly, that when I saw the figure that they were paying Mel Tucker because, to me, like, you couldn't convince Luke Fickle to move to East Lansing for that amount of money? Yeah. Like, <laughs> there's no way they would have offered Fickle less than they offered Tucker, I would assume. So it just, I don't know, maybe they, it felt like they zeroed in on Mel Tucker from really the beginning because he was the first guy that really turned the job down. I mean, he posted on his social media account on Twitter, he posted about turning down Michigan State, being fired up to return to Boulder for a year or two. Um, and I, you know, I feel bad for some of the players at Colorado. I can't help but harp on that as well because, you know, national, the early signing period and national signing day have both passed at this point. He signed a full recruiting class without any indication that he might be departing and going to another program. And all these kids are stuck, you know, at a school they might not want to be at because they committed to play for, some of them probably committed to play for a coach more than they committed to play for a program. Um, there's a guy, um, Antonio Alfano, who is one of the biggest recruits in last year's recruiting cycle who went to Alabama and then transferred to Colorado during the middle of the year mm-hmm. to play for Mel Tucker. And now he's stuck out in Boulder not being able to play for the guy he wanted to play for. And it's just things yeah. like that just make me – that's the, immediately where my mind goes to in these situations. And it's so unfortunate for the players. Obviously, you can't fault a guy for – accepting a job that pays him double because who among us wouldn't accept a job that paid double our salary right now that doesn't make it any less unfair for the players no it really doesn't um and that really begs the question who does colorado get now you know we've seen this game of musical chairs going round and round with the coaching carousel this season and it just feels like it's never going to stop and so, you know, I think it really begs begs that question. Who does Colorado get? Do they stick with, you know, Darren Chiaverini, the you know, the co-offensive coordinator of the past couple of years who was named the interim head coach? Or do they go try to find somebody right now? Yeah, I mean, the, the name that would excite the Colorado fan base the most and would be an absolute home run is Eric Bianenemy the Kansas City Chiefs offensive coordinator, fresh off winning, you know, the Super Bowl with the Chiefs. He's been, it's a guy, he's a name that came up in the last coaching cycle as well. Um, I think he has his eyes more set on an eventual NFL job, but he has to start. You have to feel like he's probably getting frustrated by the lack of ability to land an NFL head coaching job, despite the fact that he's been considered one of the best coordinators in the NFL for the last few years. The Chiefs have obviously been dynamic on offense with Patrick Mahomes, and they just won a Super Bowl, and he's still an assistant coach. So you know that itch to be a head coach has got to be going. But if he's got his eyes set on the NFL, then I don't think he'll do it. But, you know, it is his alma mater at the end of the day. He was a a hell of a running back in Boulder years and years ago. And there's a lot of resources there, Zach. This program could be really, really strong again. Like, there's a a tradition at Colorado 
of really good football. And it could a guy like him could come in there and revitalize that program and really make noise in the Pac-12, I think. I don't know if they would have the ability to fork out the money it would take to bring him home yeah. or if he even has the interest in eventually coaching at the college level. Because like I said, he's a name that we heard thrown, away, thrown around last year at the same time when they were they ended up hiring Mel Tucker. So there's obviously something there. I feel like if he wanted the job last time, it would have been his. And it's the same this time. If he wants the job this time, he'll be the Colorado head coach. I just don't know if that's the path that we're going to end up seeing. Yeah, it, that's really what it comes down to, is what does the enemy want? Because he, you know, he's got those deep roots, and he knows what it takes to land solid classes. He was on that 1990 split national champion that split it with Georgia Tech. He was third in the Heisman voting that year. He, you know, he he understands what Bill McCartney did to make Colorado a national powerhouse at a school that's been a historical afterthought most of the time. And, you know, he knows the ingredients it takes to go there. He can sell kids on it because he was sold on it himself moving there to Boulder. And it it does really come down to whether or not he thinks the NFL is going to be giving him a head coach job soon because the fact is we're seeing more and more coaches go from college to the NFL. So it's not like going to Colorado means he's there for a lifetime either. You know, he can go coach five years, get Colorado to a place that's better than when he showed up there and move on and, and basically have his pick and wait there in Boulder because he's a beloved name. He's somebody where if he does come out there, he's going to get a little bit more rope, I think, as somebody who's proven his chops as an offensive coordinator and who has that brand recognition in town, that, that goodwill that's built up from his history with the team. So, yeah, I, I think he's probably, you know, first, second, and third choice on the ballot of pretty much every Buffaloes fan right now. But, you know, I, I think the rest of the options really kind of break into two other camps. Do you want to go after a guy who's got head coaching experience or a guy who who's more of that up-and-coming assistant that's ready for the promotion? And... uh I you know obviously there are a couple of coordinators out there right now who have previous head coaching experience. I've seen Jim Levitt's name thrown around. He was there as a defensive coordinator at Colorado for a couple of years before he went to Oregon. Um, and you know he's currently at Florida Atlantic, but he'd gladly jump for a head coaching job again after his time at South Florida. Um, you mentioned Steve Sarkeesian earlier when you were talking about USC. He's, you know, currently at Alabama. He's previously been the head coach of both Washington and USC. He understands Pac-12 football. And, you know, he's another name that's going to get floated. Then you've got the guys who are currently at group of five schools. You know, the biggest names I've seen floated. Obviously, Brian Harson's name comes up a ton whenever we talk about potential moves from the group of five. 
Um, Blake Anderson is another one I've heard is a possibility for Colorado. Um, and Craig Bull, just across the border in Wyoming, you know, he hasn't had the best of runs with the Cowboys, but he's gotten them to one, uh, you know, he, he's, he's gotten them to co-division championships in the Mountain West in that same division as Boise State. And you can't forget those three national championships at North Dakota State that started that school's ridiculous run of eight in the past nine years. So, you know, those names are out there. And then, I'm, you know, in terms of assistance, you've obviously got Kia Verini, who's there right now. You've got Andy Avalos, the defensive coordinator at Oregon, is a name I've heard come up. Who And then Graham Harrell at USC. You know, you're looking at a couple of guys who have been in the Pac-12 a rather short amount of time, but do have ties to the broader area and could potentially recruit well for the, for the, the Buffaloes. So I'm just wondering, do obviously Biennemi is one, two, and three. Does any of these other names inspire you as a possible, you know, fallback for the school? I think Andy Avalos at Oregon makes a lot of sense from the standpoint that he's a defensive guy, just like Tucker probably would stick with the same kind of culture that Tucker was trying to build at Colorado. So that could potentially be kind of a seamless transition for the program to go to another guy who, you know, hasn't been at Oregon for a long time, but obviously made major strides with the Ducks defense this year and then had a lot of success at Boise State before that. So a guy with a proven track record. I can't see them going down the Brian Harson train just because of the Dan Hawkins fiasco, um, you know, a decade plus ago at this point. Um, him making that transition from Boise State to Colorado didn't really work out for either party. So I would be a little surprised to see that. But honestly, you know, be an enemy is the is the main guy. He's the target. And if not that, then honestly, Avalos makes sense. I still think Sarkeesian probably needs a little bit more time as a coordinator to get further and further away from the issues he had as a head coach at USC before someone at a power five jobs really going to offer him um, a position like that. So I think there's still going to be some time. So I think if it's not be an enemy, then it's going to be Andy Avalos would be my, my guess, not maybe the guy that I would target, although I do think he's a really good coach. That would be my guess as to where they go. If it's me, I'd probably be trying to call Troy Calhoun. Mm. at Air Force and and looking at potentially transitioning to more of an option-based offense. He's had a ton of success with the Falcons. He knows the area very well. That would probably be my second option. I don't know that he would have any interest in making the transition to the big state school, but obviously he's got a proven track record. He runs. He's got the style of offense that I think could be really interesting in that conference. Uh, that no one else is running. So that's the type of thing that could really get Colorado back up and running. That's an interesting kind of wild card to throw out there because we've heard Calhoun talk in the recent past about being fed up with uh, Air Force in the Mountain West. And, you know, like competing at that level seems to be getting frustrating for him. And so I could I could definitely see him considering an option like that if it were to come up and bringing him into the Pac-12 would definitely throw a wrench into the South. 
On that note, everybody, let's take our first quick break. When we come back, we'll be talking about uh, early national championship odds around the country. Stay tuned. Welcome back from our break, everybody. We were just talking about Mel Tucker's move to Michigan State, what it means for Colorado, what it means for the Pac-12, what it means for Power 5 football in general, and what it means for the coaching carousel. Now it's time to switch gears and take an early look at national championship odds, as we've seen at uh, Site Partner Action Network. Uh, you know, the I, I, I think the obvious thing when you first look at these, John, is it's the usual suspects at the top of the national championship hopefuls. You're not going to get good odds with a team like Clemson at 9-4. and four. You know, Ohio State's 3-1. to one. Alabama's 6-1. Six, six to one. Uh, Georgia and LSU are both 8-1. to one. You know, and that's to be expected. But I was just really curious. I wanted to ask you, what do you think is the best value pick among these teams, you know, within the national championship hunt? You know, I actually think this is probably the best value you could get Alabama on in a long time. Like six to one obviously isn't long shot odds by any means. It's the third best title odds, but usually used to seeing Alabama near the top, more like 9-4 to four odds like Clemson's got at the moment. So honestly, to me, that looked interesting right away because, you know, obviously the homer in me thinks Alabama's going to be great next year. But, you know, 6-1 to one odds feels decent enough among the contenders. I, I don't think there's much value in betting on Clemson next year. I mean, they obviously, once again, will have the easiest path to the college football playoff because there just doesn't seem like there's a legit challenger in the ACC, at least at this point in time. And it is February, so we're still a long time away from the season. And maybe someone emerges when we get closer, but just doesn't feel like way at the moment. So, yeah, honestly, among the contenders, I like Alabama 6-1 to one odds. Uh, Georgia at 8-1 to one feels pretty decent as well, uh, kind of all depending on how Jamie Newman um, transitions into the SEC from Wake Forest, if he can – if he can lift the Bulldogs' offense to a level we didn't see last year, they have a nasty defense coming back to Athens. Um, Bill Connolly just posted his projections for defensive SP Plus next season, and they were number one by a wide margin. He compared uh, Georgia's returning defense to Alabama's defense from 2011. So if you compare that kind of defense with a dynamic offense, it's going to be very difficult to beat the Bulldogs next year. Yeah, I, I think those are both decent picks in terms of, of likely uh, contenders in the hunt. I'm going to throw a wild one out there for you, though. North Carolina at 500 to 1. And here's why. You know, the Tar Heels had an interesting season last year in Mac Brown's first one back. They find Sam Howell at quarterback, who ends up being an absolute breakout star as a freshman. You know, he broke some of Trevor Lawrence's freshman records in the ACC. So, obviously, he has some talent there. You know, with a 38-7 to touchdown-to-interception ratio, I think he has the potential to get even better. 
Obviously, he could also have a sophomore slump. We don't know what's going to happen there, but I think the potential's there. Um, as you mentioned with the ACC, it's the easiest path for any team that has a chance in the Power Five. Um, it's worked out really well for Clemson in the recent past, and I think that the fact that North Carolina is in the opposite division from Clemson really plays up the opportunity to set up that title game upset opportunity to play the Cinderella there. Um, you know, a lot of way too early top 25s, including my own at Saturday Blitz, had the Tar Heels in there. So I think they're going to be on the radar fairly early in the season. And, they're, you know, you mentioned Bill Connolly, and in terms of his returning production, they're a top 20 team, especially with that offense that's loaded beyond Howell. So he has all the two tools in the world to have a phenomenal sophomore season. So... You know, if you're looking to lay a little bit of money and take an absolute flyer, I think it, it's hard to go wrong with 500 to 1 odds for what might very well be the best team in the ACC Coastal with that opportunity to set up a one-game shot to perhaps play their way into the playoff. You know, interestingly enough, we're talking long-shot odds. I had another Coastal team... This stood out to me, and this is probably ridiculous based on recent history, but Miami at 300-1 to 1 with De'Eric King coming to Coral Gables. All of it, it feels like they've been lacking has been a legit quarterback. It feels like their defense is going to be just as good as it's been the last couple years um, down there, and they've got a lot of returning talent. They've got a couple transfers coming in and some a good recruiting class on that side of the ball that could really – help that defense be even fiercer in 2020. And now they have a guy that we know can light up the scoreboard at that position. If, you know, Manny Diaz or Manny Diaz can figure out how to maximize King's ability in that offense and is not afraid to take the training wheels off and let King have free reign to kind of be who he is, you know, scramble around, make plays like we know he's capable of making, use his big arm, then Miami could be a really interesting sleeper in college football next year. They ha they're they in the division that allows them to make noise. And just like you mentioned, when North Carolina could set up a date with Clemson, where even if you have a loss on your resume at that point, you're probably playing an undefeated Clemson team. And if you beat them, even if you're sitting at maybe even six or seven, Zach, you have a really good shot at catapulting somebody and jumping into that top four. Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to which one of those two teams kind of breaks out and, and gets their shot. And, you know, that's not to discount all the other teams in that division because it's it's a dartboard league. <laughs> um, it really is in terms of, you know, seven different champs in seven years, so... Yep, now the cycle just starts over. Exactly. So which one starts the cycle? And I, I think you're right. It could very well be Miami. Uh, it really comes down to King and how well he does fit in that offense and how how dynamic Miami's offense looks in life after Enos. I'm going to switch gears now. So... If we're talking best value picks, we, we've got some good ones out there. Where do you think the odds makers might be reaching a little bit too far on a team and giving 
way too low in odds on them. I think it's LSU. I think LSU's getting the defending national champion bump, but they have forget. Correct me if I'm wrong, but when we were talking about last week's returning production, I believe they have the least amount of returning production in the SEC, yeah. at least, and they're near the very bottom in all of college football next year. And as good as maybe Miles Brennan or whoever it's going to be that replaces Joe Burrow at quarterback is next year, he ain't going to be Joe Burrow's. And we know that for a fact. I mean, Burrow completed one of the greatest seasons in college football history, and obviously what happens when a team, you know, catches lightning in a pothole like LSU did last year and wins a national championship, they were hit hard by early entries to the NFL draft all over the field. Obviously, LSU is better equipped to replace um, talent on each side of the ball than a lot of teams are because they recruit top five classes every single year. But even still, this is a program that lost a lot of production from last year. As good as whoever can be at quarterback, they're not going to be able to replicate the production that Burrow had. They still play in the SEC West. It's going to make it extremely difficult to navigate through another undefeated season. Even if they got through the SEC West, they'd probably set up another date with Georgia, who's going to have memories of last year's beatdown in Atlanta fresh on their minds, ready for some vengeance. So I think LSU's getting eight to one odds just because they just won the title that's fresh on people's minds and your average better is going to still think that LSU is going to be as good or close to the same level next year. And I just see a decent sized fall off with, with Burrow gone, with Joe Brady gone, with all the defensive key players they lost to the draft out of there. I just, I think that's a fool's bet. Yeah. I, I think that's one that kind of sent flashes out to me immediately even though, you know, it, it, it's one of those things that is the usual suspect when you're looking at early national championship odds is the defending national champion is going to get a bump. Um, one that stuck out to me, and I'll ask you a, a similar question in just a second because I think this is a little bit interesting, but, you know, normally you wouldn't say a team with 100 to 1 odds is an overreach but I think Utah might be, honestly, this year. Um, Kyle Whittingham's team lost more productivity than pretty much any other FBS school. I, I think they might be 130 out of 130 in those rankings you just alluded to with LSU. And, uh, you know, they did not end the season on a high note at all. They really flamed out in that Pac-12 championship game against Oregon. And followed that up with a pretty sad performance in the Alamo Bowl against Tex Texas. And, uh, you know, it it's true that the Pac-12 South is wide open. We talked about this a bit when we talked about Mel Tucker leaving Colorado. But no team in either the South or the North has won their division three seasons in a row. And Utah is on, you know, they've done it twice in a row now. I don't think they have a third in them. And to even sniff at the national championship in the Pac-12, you've got to have a perfect season at this point where they're at right now. Um, one loss might be surmountable for a team, but 
you have to win your division. You have to win that conference to have any chance of making the college football playoff to eat, to be in the running for this national championship. And I don't think Utah has what it takes this year with how much they're losing on both sides of the ball. No, I, I totally agree with that. Last year was Utah's shot yeah. to really make a run at a playoff or even a national championship. And obviously they did. They came within one game of making the college football playoff. Had they beaten Oregon in the Pac-12 title game, they'd probably get that last spot over Oklahoma. And they probably also get drubbed, just like Oklahoma got drubbed by LSU, to be fair. Maybe they put up a little bit better of a fight. I don't think anybody was beating LSU on that given um, on that given Saturday, or probably at all anyway. Yeah. But, yeah, I that was definitely that's definitely an interesting one. They're right there at 100-1. to 1 with a few teams I would easily bet over them, like Minnesota and even Iowa State or even USC and Washington in the same conference. I'd have more confidence in making a run than either of them. Uh, I also, another one that I kind of was interested in was Oklahoma State at 100-1. to That was a, a team I talked about last week with all the production they have coming back, that they could really make a run at the Big 12 title. And if they're able to do that with one loss, or, you know, obviously undefeated, but even with one loss, they'd probably be in contention for a spot in the college football playoffs. So I like that one. And it stuck out to me, too, that there was the nice blue blood bump in the middle with both Texas and Michigan sitting at 40 to 1. And I think either of those would be extremely foolish. So I know Longhorn fans think this is definitely the year Texas is back officially. And maybe with Sam Ellinger coming back for his senior year. They've got a shot to make some moves, but I'd be stunned if either of those programs ended up in college football playoff consideration. If I had to bet whether they'd make the college football playoff or whether those teams would finish six and six, I'm going six and six. Yeah, I think that's fair. And you actually alluded to the question I had already. You know, you talked about some of these other hundred to one teams. And if you had to pick just one of them, which one are you picking to break through? I think I'd go Oklahoma State. I, I really think I'd go Oklahoma State. I, With as much talent as they're bringing back next year, they've got the workhorse running back in Chuba Hubbard that come, came back to Stillwater. They've got a couple of capable quarterbacks uh, to make plays. And it just felt like the last couple years, they've kind of underachieved what they could be. Like if you look at you know, their rankings in SP plus and in Segarra and stuff, they were always above what the really human polls ended up having them because they lost some games. They probably shouldn't have lost. They played down to their competition. If Mike Gundy can pull it all together, I think the talent is there in Stillwater next season for Oklahoma state to really make a run up to standing. Yeah. I, you know, that was the team that stands out most to me. I think the team that needs to break through the most is probably USC out of that group. Uh, this is almost certainly a make or break year for Clay Helton there. Uh, you know, we, I, I feel like we say that every year for the past several years, but given the fact that he came back for another season in 2020, after the way things went down in Los Angeles, I, I think he's the one that has to break through the most. Um, Washington, obviously, Jimmy Lake's going to get some leeway there, you know, taking over as a first-year head coach. Arizona State's an interesting one as well, because I think, 
you know, we've seen things slowly develop with Herm Edwards there in Tempe, and it feels like this is the year where that program finally figures out how to play offense, maybe. Or, you know, stifles opponents even more on defense, but I feel like this is the year where they maybe don't have to win every game 13-10, 10-7, 7-3, you know. Um, Unless they're playing Oregon. I'd feel better if they lost games at that (laughs) score, but, you know. um, I'm sorry, it was there, low-hanging fruit. Oh, it had to be, you know, but... This is a year where they very well have the potential to be that, you know, next team up in the in the Pac-12 South. So, so those two were the the two that I really think are are the most interesting and like I said, I think Utah is just a horrific overreach. Um I'll be interested to see how Minnesota does this year. Um I think that window of opportunity was huge for them last year as well. Um, just with the way everything lined up and where they were in the polls. So I don't know that they're going to have, you know, everything come down to a battle for Paul Bunyan's axe again in the Big Ten West this year. And that was just the perfect storm that they kind of let slip through their hands. Yeah, no, I agree. They probably are in for a little bit of a regression next year. Um, But the boat's still rowing. And then... In terms of USC, like you mentioned, like they definitely have – you'd think this would be a make-or-break year. We thought last year was a make-or-break year for Clay Helton as well. And, I mean, they did win eight games. But, you know, I don't think if anyone would have asked us this time last year if we thought eight and five would be enough for Clay Helton to maintain his post at USC, I think we both would have said no. I think we said last year in the preseason preview that he had to at least win the South to save his job, if I'm not mistaken. That's before we knew he knew where the bodies were buried out there, apparently. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, is there anything else big that you want people to really know that you're thinking about in terms of these odds right now? Yes, just because a team has, like good odds to make money on doesn't mean you should bet on them. So no one should take UMass or Akron at 50,000 to one. Uh, Yeah. I mean, you're welcome to throw away a dollar and and dream about, you know, the kind of payday you'd get off of that, but just know that you're throwing away a dollar if you do. So yeah, you could just, you could just Venmo it to me instead. Yeah. There you go. That's the spirit, especially after he didn't get that Hawaii job, everybody. Uh, still not over it. Oh, well. Well, before we go, I just want to mention a couple of things that are happening at Saturday Blitz recently um, that might be of interest to you readers out there, um, along with those of you who are listening to the podcast who also like to read things online, which I imagine is probably most of you. Um, right now it's Black History Month, so I'd be remiss not to highlight Dante Pryor's series that he's doing on African Americans in college football. Uh, he's had three, uh, parts to the series come out so far, looking at early years of, of that history, um, a piece on the golden years of HBCU football, and most recently, uh, talking about integration in the sport, 
And so I think those have all been just really great reads, and I'd recommend you go check them all out as soon as you can. Um, John Semeca had a really interesting look at Kenny Robinson, the former West Virginia defensive back, and his success in the the first weeks of the XFL and what that success could mean for uh, early departures from the college ranks. We talked about this a bit last spring when we were looking at the um, Alliance of American Football and its short-lived opportunity and talking about what if the XFL starts going after some of these players that aren't you know, three years removed from their high school ranks. And Robinson really sets a test case for that in an interesting way um, and what that might mean for the future. So check out John's piece there. Uh, Richard Kimball at the site had a recent take on top five quarterback battles across the country in 2020. And obviously that's something to always think about in the offseason, especially as we start to head into spring practices. Um, as to be expected, we got a lot of great coverage about National Signing Day and what new recruits could have instant impacts at their respective schools. And then also stay tuned because, you know, we're heading into combine and draft season. So we'll have a lot of, you know, really great takes on the hottest prospects from the college ranks that'll be looking into cash in on pro careers. Um, anything else you want to leave you? our listeners with before we head out for the week, John? Uh, not really just excited to, to keep fighting through this off season. Thankful for everyone who tunes in with us every week and uh, just thankful to have this forum with you, Zach, to be able to help the, uh, the off season pains get us through the, you know, it's not the dog days of summer officially or anything like that, but every day feels like the dog days of summer without college football. It really does. It's the longest, most painful off season that I, I I think most sports fans can can feel because, you know, the NFL you have combine and draft and yada yada, and we're already through the second national signing day. You know, um, spring practices leave a little bit to the imagination, but ultimately there's nothing quite like real games. No, and it's only been a month, and it feels like it feels like I'm five years older already. Like I feel like I feel like Tom Hanks on the island in Castaway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for those of you who are on Twitter and have seen pictures of my beard, I probably am Tom Hanks from Castaway right now. So, <laughs> um, and it'll only get longer as we get further and further into this off season. This so interminable off season, but yeah, it's a pleasure being here with you, John, and a pleasure being here with all of you listeners out there. Uh, as as John said, thanks for tuning in. Uh, thanks for sticking with us and and uh, both listening every week and checking out all the great stuff we have at Saturday Blitz on the website. Uh, so on that note, we'll be signing off until next week. Hopefully. Uh, somebody we talked about might be hired by Colorado at that point. And uh, hopefully that doesn't happen with some random out there name before this actually goes live. But if that Congratulations ha- to random out there name on being hired Tuesday night for the Colorado head coaching job. Exactly. Uh, so whoever that may be, I hope your payday looks great. 
it, as good as it can be in a Pac-12 school. All right, folks, let's stop babbling. Let's let you get to the rest of your Wednesday. Have a great one. We'll be talking to you next week.